کربلا لے چلو اور سر کے بل آج چلتا ہوا جاؤں گا سر کے بل آج چلتا ہوا جاؤں گا ہے ارادہ یہی سامرا جاؤں گا میں خراسان جاب کربلا جاؤں گا کربلا جاؤں گا خلد ہے جس جگہ اس جگہ لے چلو اے فرشتوں مجھے کربلا لے چلو اے عبد میری جنت ہے کربو بلا اے عبد میری جنت ہے کربو بلا میری مٹی میں ہے عشق آلِ عبا کچھ نہیں چاہیے مجھ کو اس کے سوا مجھ کو اس کے سوا سوئے دامان اہلِ کسالِ چلو اے فرشتوں مجھے کربلا لے چلو اے فرشتوں مجھے کربلا لے چلو تم کو اللہ کا واسطہ لے چلو میری میت یہاں سے اٹھا لے چلو یا نجف مجھ کو یا نینوا لے چلو بر محمد وآل محمد صلوات Our dear elders, brothers, sisters, and wonderful children. Azzamallahu ujurana wa ujurukum bimusabina bil Husayna alayhi salam. I stand before you today in sympathy and great emotion. We know wherever you are in the world watching this today, that you will have been restricted in some way to physically attend the majalis of Aba Abdullah al Husayn. We feel your pain. We know it is heart-wrenching to not be able to visit physically. The small number of volunteers who are running the programs to bring Karbala to your home miss you. We miss you so dearly and we pray to the Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He reunites us all again very soon. And I take this opportunity to thank all the volunteers the reciters, wherever you are in the world, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We pray that you are rewarded abundantly. But COVID-19 teaches us a great lesson, that no one and nothing will stop the message of Imam Hussein, and that we will, whatever happens, hear the great sacrifice that was made in the month of Muharram and Safar. Ashura reminds us of inherent goodness in humanity if it connects humbly to God, intense in love of the absolute beauty of the cherishing Lord of the universe, gets inspired by His limitless mercy and grace and shares it with His creation. Over the last two days, you will have heard about our Al-Qayyam project and how we are so very desperate for funds so that we are able to complete this project to its fruition. Earlier, I mentioned great emotion. And with the recitations, you've had tears falling down your cheek as you hear the heart-wrenching events of Karbala. The day of Ashura, where the Holy Prophet leaves heaven to join us in mourning. The day Mawla Ali leaves heaven, the day Bibi Fatima leaves heaven to cry with us. The cry of little Ali Asghar, the cry of Sakina as she cries, Aina Aina Abbas, where is my uncle Abbas? The cries of the ladies of the caravan, the sacrifices of all the martyrs in Karbala, 
the sacrifice of Abbas by the river Furat and Hussein. Mu'mineen, I have neither the heart or the courage to continue. All we ask is that as our hearts soften even more during these tragic events, that you find it in your hearts to donate whatever you can to our Al-Qaim project. This will allow the next generations to continue to mourn and share the message of our beloved Abba Abdullah al-Hussein without the worry of lack of space or facilities. No matter how small, we ask that we continue together to raise our target of two million pounds. We are also able to collect Khums money. We have the ijaza from his eminence Ayatollah Sayyid al-Sistani. We are also able to arrange a receipt from Agha's office and we can facilitate this for you too. You can donate through the website. This is on your screen through PayPal or please contact us directly. The number is also displayed. We will personally get in touch with you for your pledge and to also arrange payment. Your donation means a lot to us and we struggle to find the words to thank you enough. But our Prophet states, whoever builds a mosque for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will build for him a house in paradise. I take this opportunity to sincerely thank you once again. If you have any questions, please do get in touch with us. We really do look forward to hearing from you. What bigger reward is there in this dunya than that of being granted paradise in the hereafter? Just before we begin the majlis, a small note that this lecture is not suitable for children, male and female, under the age of 15. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wassalat wassalam ala Sayyidina wa Azimina وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا أبي القاسم محمد اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين وأصحابه الغر الميامين الحمد لله الذي جعلنا من المتمسكين بولاية سيدي ومولاي علي بن أبي طالب الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله أما بعد يقول الله في كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس أنا خلقناكم من ذكر وأنثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا إن أكرمكم عند الله يتقاكم إن الله عليم خبير Female genital mutilation is viewed as one of the most controversial and barbaric acts associated with the religion of Islam. Indeed, you find many Muslim-majority countries which obligate some of the members of the Muslim community, the female members of the community, to have their most sensitive area in their development mutilated at a young age. Indeed, many of the attacks against the religion of Islam are attacks which are centered around the rights of the female in Islam, and especially centered around this particular topic. You find if you were to go to Sudan, or Somalia, or Eritrea, or Kenya, or other parts of the world, there are countries which are majority Muslim, and not majority Muslim, but have a great Muslim population, which obligate their daughters, for example, or their sisters to have their sexual organs mutilated 
or indeed cut or exhausted or uprooted at a very young age. When you look at these countries, you find that they follow the religion of Islam in some cases, as in Sudan and Somalia, are majority Muslim countries. And yet you find that some of the most traumatic experiences faced by the daughters of these countries or by the wives of these countries are associated with female genital mutilation. And that's why you find that for some members of the Shia community, we would have never ever come across circumcision or mutilation in relation to the female. We may, for example, have come across it in relation to the male. But when it comes to the 12 Shia community, you find that this is something unheard of. As in never do you hear, for example, of a doctor in the community who had undertaken the operation of cutting the sexual organs of, for example, a female at the age of seven. For us as 12 Shia, this is not common. If you were to go to the Buhara or the Buhra community, you'll find that this act is one of the most prevalent acts that you will see. It is very rare to find a member of the Buhra community, of the females of the community, who has not gone through the act of cutting, for example, a part of the female sexual organ known as the clitoris. You find that this particular part is cut. And so within the Buhra community, there are many reports of those who not only have undertaken it, but have gone through a traumatic experience. Because in their opinion, the leader of the community has guided all of them that this is a recommended practice from Rasulullah How many members of the Buhra community are actually going to question this? In many cases, you find that there are many Muslims in the world today who simply follow what their parents follow. I'm not going to question what my parents say. If my parents and their parents and their parents have all looked at their daughters and ensured that those daughters went to a doctor and that that doctor went to the most sensitive part of the body of that daughter and left her with that experience, what am I going to do? I have to follow the Maulana's orders. I have to follow my leader's orders. And so therefore, it was only a few years ago that some members of the Buhra community spoke out about the traumatic experiences that members of the Buhra community not just in India, where they flourish, and in Pakistan, of course, but also in places like North America, where some of them had to have these treatments secretly, that they had to go undercover to certain doctors, because we know that in majority of countries, such treatments are viewed as being barbaric, without a doubt. That you take a girl, for example, at the age of seven, we're not talking seven days, we're talking seven years of age, and that you tell her that this has got to be done to you because either it will reduce your sexual arousal or it will increase your sexual arousal, which we'll come to later in the discussion. And that girl has no say. If she tries to say anything, then she'll be reprimanded because no doubt there are certain sects in Islam which are in a way like a cult in the sense that nobody is allowed to question anything where it's come from. May Allah not let us fall into that trap where when you see an act, you ask questions. What's the origin of this act? What's the context of when this act was discussed? As you saw in our discussion a few nights ago on Sharia law, there are certain variables that should never be dismissed. One is text versus context. Another is legislation versus custom. You may have something that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, his family brings to us as legislation. For example, salah, when it comes to us, is legislation. But I may have something that may be there as a customary practice. The Arabs used to engage in trade. I continue and allow this customary practice to evolve, for example, in Arabia. There may be a situation where that which is legislated and that which is custom are combined. For example, you may legislate an area of nikah or aqid or katbiktab or marriage, but you may look at certain customs related to it and tweak them. So when we look at this, we ask ourselves the question, this act, when we look at it, does it have an origin in the teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family? Are these things cultural or are they religious? Are they politically motivated or are they theologically motivated? 
Because every time a feminist movement speaks out for their rights, some of what they speak out, they have every right to speak out for. When I look, for example, if a country forces hijab on everybody, is this a religious directive or a political directive? Religiously, we cannot force everybody in a country to wear hijab. But politically, I may look at the system of that country and I may decide that morally, the best way to ensure that there is a great amount of chastity in that country is by enforcing hijab. Is that political or is that religious? Because if people now hear that you live in a country where hijab is forced, they may get the impression that Rasulullah and Amir al-Mu'mineen were the ones who said, when you see a country of Muslims, force them all to wear hijab. We know that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, had members of his community who may not necessarily have worn hijab or not necessarily have been directed or forced to wear hijab. Yet you may find that some Muslims living in certain states will force people to wear the hijab. Is that Islam or is that political direction under the guise of Islam? Then you have others who look at, for example, my right is that my wife should be ready for me at all times. Then all of a sudden you see marital rape. A person comes home, forces himself on his wife. Is that Islam or is that culture or the way a patriarchal society has developed? You see some people, for example, abuse their wives. Is that Islam or is that you abusing verses of the Quran for your own motives? Therefore, when I look at this discussion on female genital mutilation, you do not be surprised if there are females who leave Islam because of this. Because if your daughter at the age of seven would you take her towards a doctor and say to that doctor that I want you to mutilate that sensitive part of my daughter's body? Would you accept that your daughter goes through such a traumatic experience? As in honestly, even when you look at your daughter as the flower of your life, how could a person take their daughter towards this treatment where some of them are affected when they give childbirth later on? Some of them are affected with bleeding. Some are affected with extreme pain. Therefore, when we come to this area, we find that this area is prevalent in the Muslim community. Some of people have spoken out, but unfortunately, many still don't. As in, there are certain areas of Islam that many are not speaking out against, even though it's in our literature. Slavery, for example. Female genital mutilation, for example. Marital rape, for example. These are areas that may have had a context when they first emerged if they even emerged as part of the religion. But we have to reassess them because if our law is not a law that's going to reassess, then there's no such thing as ijtihad working. Ijtihad are when the scholars on their origin and the scholars of today discuss these areas. Sheikh Al-Kulayni discussed this. Sheikh Al-Tusi discussed this. You have Al-Hurr Al-Amili discussed this. Said Muhammad Sadiq Al-Sadr, may Allah bless his soul, discussed this. All of these great ulama from the time of the beginning of the ghaiba until today have discussed female genital mutilation. And amongst them, Ayatollah Sistani. Let us tonight examine this sensitive topic in order that we're able to understand whether Islam as a religion came to humiliate the female or did Islam come to give a voice and equality to that female. Let's examine the following stages. Number one, why do Muslims circumcise males? And if God created us perfect, what's the need for circumcision? Number two, when it comes to female circumcision, is this mentioned in the Quran? If not, is it mentioned in Sunni and Shia hadith? If it is, what are the contexts of those discussions? And how do the Imams discuss these key areas? Number three, the different schools of Islam. Which of them say it's wajib to circumcise or to go towards mutilation of that sensitive area? Which of them talk of sunnah? Which of them talk of makroma? And which of them talk of the example that this is neither sunnah nor Quran? But if a person may want to, for example, do this, they can. From which angle do they come from on this area? Number four, how did Ibn Taymiyyah say the reason there are many adulterous relationships is because this is not being performed? And how do we reply back to such a statement? Number five, 
How is it that Ayatollah Sistani looked at this issue a few years ago? And how did he make clear that some acts like this are criminal offenses against the person who's at the receiving end? And number six, how did the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, want to come and guide the community to ensuring that the females have as much role in its development as the male? Let's examine this and dissect the topic in complete depth. As we know, commonly in Islam, what's agreed upon is what's known as male circumcision. Male circumcision in Islamic thought is an act that is not just religious in terms of Islam. As we know, the Abrahamic faiths, if someone goes to Judaism, will find that the Jewish community circumcises their males, their newborns, in the same way that we circumcise our newborns. Because sometimes someone might come to you as a Muslim and say, you people are barbaric, you Muslims, performing this act, for example. We reply by saying, no, on the contrary, us and the Jewish community together, whether it's seven days or eight days later, after that male is born, we both conclude that there is within our traditions the nature of what? Of circumcision. Is it obligatory for us? It's not obligatory for us. It's sunnah mu'akkada. Meaning that it is part of the sunnah of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, that they would teach us that this is a highly recommended act for you to perform. As Imam al-Sadiq says, that seven days after your male baby is born, your son is born, then circumcise them. I advise you to do this. This will help in their growth, in their upbringing, and the earth abhors the urine that has come from the one who is not circumcised. Notice here Imam al-Sadiq points to a number of things. Number one, I advise you, after seven days. Meaning, that does a person have to circumcise their child? Not at all. You, it's recommended for you to. But circumcision becomes wajib for which area? For tawaf, when you are doing hajj. A person cannot perform tawaf if they are not circumcised. Otherwise, if now someone converts to the religion of Islam, when they convert, they want to pray, for example. Do they need to be circumcised to pray salah? No. A person can pray salah without being circumcised. A person can perform other acts without being circumcised. Where a person has to be circumcised is if they want to do hajj. And the origin of circumcision is from Nabi Ibrahim, as in when us and the Jewish community both, both believe in circumcision, the Jewish community and us both believe it originates with Abraham السلام, The prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala follow the sunnah of Ibrahim السلام, in circumcision. Therefore for us, when we go to a doctor in our community, and you all know there's always one doctor in the community who has circumcised all the newborn males, you find that when you go to that doctor, within seven days, most of the community will go. Some will say, why go and circumcise? For what reason? As in at the end of the day, you say in the Quran, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you, We created mankind in the best of molds. So if God created me perfect, why do I have to do this? As in why, when my Lord says, He's telling me that we created in the best way. Why any change is needed? My Lord also created me with fingernails in the best of ways. But there's a certain period when they have to be cut off as well. My Lord also created me with pubic hair at a certain age. But there's a period that has to be cut off as well. There are other parts of my body which are created, which my Lord created me in perfection. But there comes a point for those parts of the body when they have to be cut off. When a person comes to me and tells me that there are non-believers who say, you Muslims claim your God created you perfect. I do. I believe every area of the human being is created perfect for a certain period. And then there needs to be a way in which it is looked after. Does any atheist deny today that you cut your nails? No atheist denies. I said, God created me with fingernails. I could let them grow. I saw one man in India once. I could not believe the length of his nails. I don't think he had cut his fingernails at all. It was going round and round like a roller coaster. But that person has decided not to. I as a Muslim believe I've been created in the best of ways. Although the verse can also be taken 
that of all God's creations, I'm his caliph on earth. That's the best of ways possible. In contrast to others who could not be his caliph. But let's say physically, yes, I've been created in the best of ways. But there comes a point where my fingernail is cut, my toenail is cut. Can you go to any non-Muslim today and you say to him, why don't you keep your toenails growing longer? Let them just grow out. He says, no, 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 because it gets a bit dirty, it gets a bit filthy. Bacteria collects in that area of skin. So, no, 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 what's the problem? Let it grow. Let all the bacteria collect in that area. He says, no, it's been proven medically, they will always say to you, that if that bacteria collects, we may end up amputating that person's leg or that person's foot. Likewise, we believe that that area of foreskin may, for example, collect certain germs or bacteria, may, for example, make us liable to being affected, susceptible to being affected by certain cancers, being affected to certain other sexual transmitted diseases. There are certain areas I don't need medicine to prove to me why Nabi Ibrahim establishes such an act. For me, Nabi Ibrahim salam, establishing is enough. But when I see some medical research saying there is less chance of infection when somebody has been circumcised, I could use it. I don't have to rely on it, but I could use it if I want to. Therefore, for me as a Muslim, male circumcision is a sunnah. It can be seen as being wajib if that person wants to go on hajj. Someone says, Sayyidina, wait. Someone's converted and they're about 45 years of age. You're telling me that that person at the age of 45 wants to go to hajj with a kafila. You're telling me that they have to be circumcised? Yes, they have to be circumcised. You're going to the holiest site on earth. You're going to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where you should go in the most supreme way. Even I as a Muslim say I'm not a convert. If I have myself in a state of janab, can I enter Masjid al-Haram? But I'm a Muslim. I'm a Muslim. Why can't I enter Masjid al-Haram in the state of Janaba? Because I have to be in that state, which is the most pristine state, not just of physical purity, of spiritual purity as well. Even Imam al-Sadiq says, even if the person is 80 years of age, it does not matter. Now, of course, a person, it can be discretionary that if something is going to bring harm to that person, I don't think ulama are just going to put a gun to your head and say that you must. At the end of the day, Islam doesn't want to occasion harm onto you. But for us, a person, when they want to do hajj, that circumcision applies. Otherwise, if someone now is a convert, they want to pray salah, that person does not need to be circumcised. That person can be someone who wants to follow the sunnah or they continue in their own direction. Therefore, when it came to male circumcision, everyone was in agreement. The Jewish community, the Muslim community, all of them one by one were in agreement. How about when it came to female circumcision? Because when I hear the likes of Ayan Hassa Ali and others who on YouTube attack Islam by talking about the fact that in Sudan, in Somalia, in Yemen, in, for example, Kenya, in other parts of the world, there are people who are affected by this genital mutilation. I have to look at it. Female circumcision is mentioned in the Quran? Not at all. Female circumcision, if it's not mentioned in the Quran, where is then female circumcision mentioned? Or female genital mutilation as they mention? It's certainly there in the hadith literature. And it's not just Sunni hadith it's in. It's firmly in Shi'i hadith as well. It's in Sunni and Shi'a hadith. Because some Shi'a, when they hear that it's mentioned, for example, in the Sunan of Abu Dawood. As you know, you have a Sahah al-Sitta, the six Sahah books, Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, Abu Dawood, and Ibn Majah. These six Sahah books, many of the Muslims in the world will follow them. Within one of them, there is the Sunan of Abu Dawood. In the Sunan of Abu Dawood, there is a hadith where there is a lady by the name of Um Habib. She is of the ladies who migrated to Medina. And she met the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. When she met the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, he was informed, Um Atiyah al-Ansari narrates this, he was informed that this lady used to circumcise the females in the community. The Holy Prophet spoke to her and she said to him that if you prohibit me from doing it, then I will stop doing it. 
In the narration, the Prophet doesn't prohibit her from doing it. Interestingly, the Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, he says to her that no, do not prohibit it from doing it, but you should not uproot the whole of that area. The clitoris, you don't uproot the whole of the area or extract everything of that area. If anything, it should just be a snip of the clitoris. Nothing more than that. Interesting here that seemingly, first and foremost, this tradition predated Islam. That's why we discussed there is a difference between that which is legislated by Rasulullah and that which is a customary practice which you are now looking for ways to either reform or to, in a way, try and tell the people that the way you're doing this thing is something barbaric. This is not what you're meant to do. You find here when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, if we were to take the hadith of Sahih, because there are many ulama of Ahlul Sunnah who believe this hadith is weak. They don't accept it. And I'll come to the different schools and their opinions. Many of the ulama of Ahlul Sunnah, what do they say? They say this hadith is weak. The Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, in this hadith, interestingly, highlights that there is a situation which is possible, which is what? Which is that there were people who were extracting the whole clitoris. Or they were removing it completely, uprooting it. The hadith says, don't extract it or uproot it. If I was to say to you now, you extract a tooth. When you extract a tooth, what does that mean? You take a third of the tooth out? What does that mean? It means that you completely take out the tooth. Isn't that true? So therefore here, it seemed that in Mecca, a practice which predated Islam amongst the jahils of the Arabs was that their daughters would be what? Would face possibly a mutilation of that area. Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, clearly doesn't legislate. What there may be here is that, okay, if this is your urf, then we can discuss this area by saying that what? That instead of extracting, just snip, for example, a little of the area and nothing more than that. And I will come to why this may be relevant in terms of plastic surgery laws very shortly. So in Sunni literature, what do you have? In Sunni literature, the hadith is there. When you look, therefore, in the schools of Islam, the Sunni and the Shia schools, you find that within the schools of the religion of Islam, they have given each their own opinions. What are their opinions? The first opinion is the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i. Imam al-Shafi'i is amongst the four fuqaha of the Sunni schools. Normally you hear the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i and Hanbali. These four schools of Islamic law, some of them were contemporaries of Imam al-Sadiq especially Abu Hanifa and Malik bin Anas. Imam al-Shafi'i did not study under Imam al-Sadiq but was from those who had studied under his predecessor, Imam al-Shafi'i, in his opinion, this act is an act which is wajib, obligatory, obligatory. He goes with the opinion that it's obligatory. That's why you find the areas where Shafi'i majority countries are affected by this. For example, Egypt, Shafi'i majority. Somalia, Shafi'i majority. Sudan, Shafi'i majority. For example, Yemen, Shafi'i majority. When in those countries a girl reaches, for example, the age of seven, they will come and cut that area of the clitoris of that girl. Why? So that you don't get aroused too easily. You don't get affected too easily. This will cut and kill your arousal or your emotion. So you found that a Shafi'i, in his opinion, says wujub. This is obligatory. Then what do you have? Ahmed bin Hanbal, the Hanbali school, in some of the opinions used to believe in wujub. Yeah? When they come to this area, they talk of it being obligatory. Ibn Qudama, however, of the scholars, he talks of no, not necessarily obligatory. One may side with either istihbab or something known as a makruma, what in English some call an ennobler. What do we mean? One opinion of Ahmed bin Hanbal is that this act, male circumcision, wajib. Female circumcision, wajib. Then second opinion, no. Male circumcision, wajib. Female circumcision, mustahab. Third opinion, makruma. Someone says, what's the difference between an act 
which is mustahab, and an act which is a makramah. A makramah, if you do it, it's good. But if you don't do it, there's no problem whatsoever. The other one is taken as what? As taken as possibly a sunnah from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Part of his teachings. You found that there are certain things which may have an istihbab, which is shara'an, which come from the legislation originated by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Others know, might be seen as something which was customary and allowed to continue. Something that may not have originated with the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his family. So you found the second opinion, Ahmed bin Hanbal. Third opinion, that of Malik, which seems the most lenient. That is nothing regarding, for example, wujub or istihbab. And you have the opinion of who? And the opinion of Abu Hanifa. So even in the four schools of Sunni fiqh, and that's why I always make it clear, these fuqaha, they may have been learned in their own right, but their opinions sometimes move from wajib all the way to istihbab to makrumah, completely different opinions amongst each other. Sometimes people imagine that Ahlul Sunnah, all their opinions on one area is the same. No. You may have a faqih like a shafi'i who talks of wujub. Now that means what? That means that there are some whose daughters will go through this blatantly. I feel sorry for those girls, honestly, in Somalia, in Sudan. I honestly feel sorry for them. Because these girls, in some cases, we think that when we're living in London, or we're living in certain areas which are seen as first world, we're used to anesthetic, aren't we? We go to the anesthetist and they're going to provide us with that which we don't feel anything that happens. These girls are being obligated to some cases go to doctors who are back door. Believe you me, I've heard stories. They don't go to the doctor. Sometimes they go even in a hairdresser and someone cuts it over there. That is not what Islam wanted to bring. Why is this happening? This is not an act which is wajib. Show me Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi did it. Did he do it? For example, his daughters did it. I heard a member of the Bohra community, and this I have to verify, I must admit, who said that this was done even to the daughter of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Where do we have such evidence? That Rasulullah sallallahu I promise you, if this was something that we knew, every single member of the Shia of Al-Muhammad today would go towards that direction. Is it from the Sunnah? No. From Fatima? No. From the daughters? No. From the wives? Where do we have it that this was done? I remember that, yes, reading a tradition once regarding Hajar, the wife of Nabi Ibrahim salam. But even that tradition is open to question. We cannot deny that some Sunni schools make it clear. These traditions are weak. And some of the ulama of Al-Azhar have spoken out. That why do you traumatize your daughter that way? Other girls in the world are not even following that which is wajib. You're obligating them in some cases to stick on something which is not even a sunnah of Rasulullah And if Imam al-Shafi'i says it's wajib, who is Imam al-Shafi'i at the end of the day? Let's, let's be frank over here. Imam al-Shafi'i is what? Ma'soom? Imam al-Shafi'i is ma'soom? You follow the Shafi'i school. Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, they're not ma'soom. They have their ijtihad on an area. Why if you're born as a buhra or you're born as a shafi'i, you have to stick on the same opinions that were ratified before? Where's the door of ijtihad? A door that recognizes a possible context to an issue or recognizes a dynamic fiqh which is able to evolve. So you found, unfortunately, many of these girls are traumatized. But they, let them dare speak out. If you dare speak out in your community, Against anything, you try and leave a community which is so enclosed, even here in our Shia 12 community. If you try and speak out against a certain practice, you get kicked out of the community. Unless you're with the status quo. I can see even maqas of the sharia, the aim of the sharia was what? That I get a seven-year-old girl and this is what I do to her? A seven-year-old girl that tra traumatized her? So you found in the Sunni school... There were the differing opinions. In the Shi'i school, do we have a hadith on this area? No doubt, we have a hadith on this area. From the time of Shaykh Al-Kulayni until the discussions of the likes of Ayatollah Al-Sistani, Ayatollah Al-Khoi, Ayatollah Shubari Zanjani, Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq Al-Sadr, may Allah bless their souls and lengthen the lives of those who are amongst us. 
all of them discussed the ahadith from Shaykh al kulaini from Shaykh al-Tusi, from Al-Hur al-Amili, discussing what? The circumcision of the female. But when they discuss this, what do they say? They say, yes, in that time, there was a lady by the name of Um Habib, and she had been a lady who used to circumcise. That means something which has predated the religion, not necessarily legislation. Because let me make something very clear. The ulama of the Shia don't give one opinion on this. There is a major debate on this area. Firstly, there is no such thing as mutilating the clitoris. That is barbaric. That is not part of Shia teachings at all. That's not there at all. Then someone says, but secondly, Sayyidina, it's there in the traditions of the Imams. You look at some of the discussions of the Imams. Yes, there, it's there. Imam al-Sadiq, however, says the circumcision of the male is sunnah. The circumcision of the female is not sunnah. This is not sunnah. So someone says, if it's not sunnah, how comes it may be something permissible? Because Ayatollah Sistani, for example, has asked the question that circumcising the female this is something impermissible or no? He goes, it's permissible, it's in our traditions. When they then say to him that in Holland, there's a situation where a Somalian family insists that their daughter goes through this process. He says, firstly, the law of the land, you respect it. Secondly, nobody needs to go through this. This is, the traditions are there, but they're not necessarily right traditions. These are criminal acts if someone's going to mutilate that whole part and nobody needs to do these things at all. Ayatollah Sistani was one of the few who spoke out openly in the sense of on his website answering this question. There are others who look, they say that in the Shi'i tradition, what's there? In the Shi'i tradition, there's a debate. This is law or this is custom. Then there is a debate. Is this maybe just a hukum which is irshadi? And then there is another debate. It may be just a makruma if you want to do it. Focus on this point about if you want to do it. Even this area of the body of the female, there are some plastic surgeons who will work on this area. If you go and look at some of the plastic surgeons' works, there are certain things which are known as hudectomies or the clipping of the clitoris. That plastic surgery, many times people ask, Sayyidina, plastic surgery in Shiism is allowed? For example, I want to have plastic surgery where I want to have implants, for example. A female wants to have breast implants. This is allowed? Yes, this is allowed. I want to, for example, fix a certain part of my face, for example. There are some who have the Botox and the facelift and others who may have their nose done and so on. You see this around the Shi'i community, not just in the Shi'i community, Shi'i majority countries like Iran, where this is done, although it's got to quite a level which is quite baffling because there are many females who may go to have, for example, implants done for their breasts. This is allowed according to Ayatollah Sistani. But the problem is it's a female doctor who's doing it, a male doctor who's doing it. A male doctor, it is haram for him to do your surgery as a female. The person is not mahram to you, you cannot do it. So therefore, in that situation, that person who is in that situation with you, who is a male doctor, cannot undertake it. There are many out there today, sadly, who are even putting pictures of what's been done to them. And not just putting pictures. There are many out there who have male doctors doing breast enhancement surgeries for them. It has to be a female. Someone says, I can't find a female. I'm sure you can. Just uh, scour the internet, do your research. And you'll find, mashallah, one or two female doctors who are able to undertake the surgery for it. Because that surgery is not something which is wajib for you. <laughs> who said it's wajib? You want to look after yourself, for your husband, for example, for yourself. You want to feel better, there's no problem. But that doctor has to be a female doctor undertaking that surgery. In the surgery of the area of that sensitive spot, what is known as the female sexual organ, the clitoris, that area, can someone clip the hood, for example, of it? Can someone have a change of it? Yes, they can. There is no harm there whatsoever. Therefore, could there be a possibility of a discussion that in the traditions, the Shi'i traditions, that snip that is spoken about, rather than the mutilation, which is haram, maybe that it gives you the option that that surgery, which we have today, can be performed, for example, in that area. Because you know, there are some in our communities who think you cannot change anything which Allah has given you. Otherwise, then why am I getting my teeth done? I might as well let just then let, 
There are certain things which are absolute, some you can change. So in that area, when someone says, how comes our Shia ulama allow it, or mention it in their traditions, no one mentioned it as wajib, nor necessarily is it seen as mustahab, although there's a debate about the istihbab. But let's say as a makrama, those who may want to do it, they can. And those who don't want to, there is no problem at all. Allah will not burn you in hellfire on the day of judgment if you decide that area is something you want to work on. But to traumatize one's daughter on that moment, Ayatollah Sistani mentions this could be criminal acts. These are not the acts that we want to happen, not at all. Someone says, Sayyidina, but you know what? It will stop their sexual arousal. So it's better to do such a thing. Because there is a report that Ibn Taymiyyah says that, you know what? The reason there is high cases of zina is because of this. Because we're not circumcising the daughters. That could be your opinion. But at the end of the day, our daughters in many cases are more chaste than any of us. We claim that we are chaste. Our daughters can maintain their strength and their chastity better than any of us. Yes, nine-tenths of desire was given to the female. And nine-tenths of what? Honor, chastity was given to the female as well. Someone says, how Sayyidina? Nine-tenths of this and nine-tenths of that. Nine-tenths of the desire at home with the husband, for example. That shyness that exists, but that desire is there when you're with your partner. But in public, there is that nine-tenths in which they maintain themselves. You have to go through these processes to maintain. They could teach you about how to maintain yourself. Without a doubt, with the hijab that we have, it's not just hijab, which is physical. Socially, many of them upright. They embodied what Islam was looking for when Islam first came and spoke about the rights of the female. Because when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, when the Holy Prophet came towards Arabia, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, had seen that unfortunately the female was being treated in the most barbaric ways. When he saw that that female was being treated in the barbaric ways, how did he go about changing this? In some cases, he saw there were customary practices that you couldn't change overnight. Someone says, Sayyidina, Somalia and Sudan, we can change overnight. You can't necessarily change it overnight. But no doubt there has to be a movement where people speak out for the rights of those people there. A female Muslim or any female for that matter. Say there are other females in the world today. No way should they be subjected to being taken to a doctor in the middle of nowhere, cut off, and they come out without a voice for anyone to speak to them. Why? Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa spoke out for that very reason in Mecca. In which way? What were they doing to the females in Mecca? Do you know how many rights of the females were taken from them in Mecca? The first of them, some of them did not even have a right to live. Every female has a right to live and be happy in what she has in life. Yes? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa would look at some of the females there. He would say, what is this? The Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us, male and female, different races and tribes, so that we may get to know one another. The best amongst us in the eyes of God is not the male, nor the female, is the one who has the consciousness of Allah's presence. When the Holy Prophet was there in Mecca with his wife Khadija, they would see that the female would be blatantly buried alive. You think there is much difference between this mutilation and being buried alive? One of them kills you physically. The other kills you spiritually. One kills you physically. The other kills you spiritually. Because you find it hard to recover in some cases. He'd see that this female baby would be there and would be buried alive. Khadija alayhi salam. Khadija, you know what she would do? She would say that if there's any females who fear for their daughter's lives. Because where did this whole feminist movement in origin begin? I remember one person who said a line, the first feminist was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa They said to him, you can't say that because all feminists, they differ on certain things, they go against Islam. No, no, in the sense that the first to say that the female should have a voice and should have someone speaking out for her right was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and his wife Khadija. This religion was built because of a female giving everything she had Back to society. Khadija would say that if there's any of you who feel oppressed, you don't have a voice. You feel like that psychologically you're being killed. 
physically you're being tortured, come to my house. She was Amir at Quraysh, the princess of Quraysh. In the middle of the night, people would knock at her door. Her servant says that one day, someone knocked at the door. I went running to her. And I said to her, there is a lady at the door. She's got a sack in her hand. Sayyidah Khadija said to her, come in, come in. What was in that sack? A baby. I said, what is she said, it's my female baby. My husband, if he finds out I've given birth to a female, my husband will bury it alive. My husband will bury the female baby alive. Sayyidah Khadija said, don't worry, come here. A house for those ladies who face this mutilation has to be built somewhere. People have to speak out because this is abhorrent. A house in the name of Khadija, even if we institute something to speak out for those who have rights. Sayyidah Khadija would say, the husband would come, she said, what do you want? Well, I'm looking after her now. I will maintain her. Why are you killing your own daughter? And the Quran would come with an ayah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. On the day of judgment, the female baby will cry, for what reason was I buried alive? The first right he wanted to give, the right to live. The second right, to be treated fairly in a marriage, not to have their feelings destroyed, because you can have emotional abuse and you can have physical abuse. Surah 58 of the Quran was revealed in honor of that lady who pleaded to Allah about the way her husband was treating her in the house. That was the second way. Third way, that they weren't to be used as if they are animals. They are humans with a voice. In which way? Do you know if your father was married to, for example, your stepmother, say your mother's died, he's married another lady. When your father dies, you inherit that lady. She's yours. Your stepmother is inherited. Imagine those ladies. They're married to a man. The husband's died. She's become a widow. The son inherits her. Rasulullah said, there's no such thing as inheriting a lady. What are you doing? That was number three. Number four, the dowry would go towards the female, would not go towards the male. Because the Arabs, what would they do? They'd take everything for themselves. They'd look for the highest bidder. The Quran said, Give the female that which belongs to them. That would be number four. Number five, the right to an education. The same way the female, the male gains an education, likewise that female gains an education as well. Number six, the right to be part of the political process of the whole of the religion of Islam. Involved at the whole of the religion. At the day of Mubahala, his daughter Fatima was there at the front with the rest of the family. Who said that the female could not be there at the front to represent the religion? The female has as much role being there at the front representing the religion as all the males do. Combine all of this, he wanted a society where the females knew that they could preserve the religion, they could preserve the sanctity of the morals, and that they could be safe from any of the Muslim males that surrounded them. 50 years later at Karbala, none of them felt safe that afternoon. Yes, because only 50 years earlier, he had spoken out for all of their rights, that they are not to be mistreated, that they are not to be left in a way where they are abused emotionally or physically. Why do you think Karbala happened? Because a man saw that his grandfather's religion was being plummeted, that you could reach a level where you could have a group of females who even water is deprived from them. Imagine. Even water for that female, deprived. And if we have to kill the female, we'll kill the female. If it means that we mutilate every part of her body, not one part. Female genital mutilation, one part. At Karbala, they never left any part alone. And not only did they not leave any part alone, they did not mind if the hooves of their horses trampled on those parts. They did not want to leave one part alone, on the 10th of Muharram. They wanted to go after every single part. And believe you me, there are some ladies who saw trauma because when someone sees the trauma of female genital mutilation, they may find it hard for them to recover. I only have one thing to say to them, nothing more, because I can never know what it feels like. But on the 10th of Muharram, there are ladies who had the most traumatic day of their lives. But believe you me, if it wasn't for those ladies 
we would not know about Karbala today. Those females at Karbala are the reason that we know about Karbala today. Those females, people ask the question, why did Imam Hussain bring all those females with him? You would think he'd take Habib, Muslim, Hur, John, the others. Why bring those females with you? On the one hand, Napoleon's famous lines echo to us. Give me good mothers, I'll give you a strong nation. He had good mothers alongside him. But number two, he knew that if I die in Karbala, it's these ladies who will preserve this message. How many ladies were at Karbala? 20. 20 ladies were at Karbala. We normally mention them, the ones who remain strong, stronger than some men, I may argue. Yes, We mention all the time the likes of Rabab, don't we? And we mention, for example, the likes of Um Ishaq, Sayyida Zainab, Um Kulthum. But there are certain ladies who don't get a mention. Even in the middle of their most traumatic moment, they remain strong with a sabr that was unbelievable. Which ladies? One of them was a lady who had a young son. It came to the events of the 10th of Muharram. She said to her young son, after her husband had been killed, she said to him, now I want you to go and make me proud with the son of Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam. He looked at her. He stood up straight. He said to her mom, I'll make you proud tonight, today. So what happened was, he went to Imam al-Hussein. He stood in front of Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam. When he stood in front of him, he said to him, Sayyidi wa Mawlai, Aba Abdullah, Imam al-Hussein, allow me now. It's my turn to go. What, 12 years old? 12 years, what upbringing is that? Where your mother says, I want your whole life to be dedicated to Fatima. What upbringing? Honestly. Because look where Islam had come. It had come from a period where ladies, the babies were being buried alive, the females, to a period where mothers were saying, we'll be proud if our sons are given away for the son of Fatima. 12-year-old, he came to Imam al-Hussein, alayhi salam. He said to him, Abu Abdullah, let me. Imam al-Hussein said, my son, your father has already given his life away. And you have a mother over there. Return back to your mother. And sit with your mother, protect your mother. He returned, walking with the heavier steps back to his mother. His mother looked at him. She said, what's wrong? Why have you not made me proud? I ask you, which mother? Which mother is ready to say that to her son? Why aren't you making me proud? For what reason? He said to her, Mom, I asked Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam. But the Imam said to me, that no, go back, look after your mother, you're too young. You know what she did? The belt, she made him stand straight, made his turban bigger. She said, now go back to him. You look a bit more standing straight, make me proud, return back. He came to Imam al-Hussein alayhi salam. He said to him, Aba Abdullah, please allow me to fight alongside you. Imam had noticed. He said, no son, go back. He said, it would make my mother proud. And it would make your mother proud. And I want to be there for you. Which mothers are produced in this way? The mothers whose voices are heard, not the ones whose voices are abused. When he came out on the plains of Karbala, imagine you've got thousands of soldiers, a 12-year-old. But the upbringing of a mother like his. You know, he stood up in front of all of them. And he looked and he said the famous lines, Amiri Husseinun wa ni'mal Amir. You know, my master, my prince is Hussein. And what a leader, what a prince. Sururu Fuad al Bashir al Nadir. The one who gave happiness to the heart of the warner who came to us. Ali and Fatima, Walida. Ali and Fatima are his parents. Have you ever found an equal to him? Twelve years old. And he's looking around at his mother. She's like, go, go, make me proud, make Fatima proud. And he would go out on the battlefield saying those lines, Amir Hussein wa Ni'mal Amir. Until when he was killed, his mother, upright, no tears. So just honor and a sacrifice for Sayyid al-Shuhada. It's an honor for me as a mother. That was one. Then you had another mother, 
Who was it? The mother of Wahab al-Kalbi. Wahab had been, originally these were Christian families. And they had converted to the religion of Islam. When they converted to the religion of Islam, his mother had known about Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, about Imam al-Hussein, about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. She on the 10th of Muharram said, Wahab, make your mother proud today. Problem, Wahab's just got married. Wahab's married a girl like a few weeks earlier. And that girl saying to him, no, I don't want you to go, please. Look at the difference here. The mom is like, I want you to look after the son of Fatima. Do not leave him alone. You're not my son. If I see that you are not fighting on something, it's like, Mom, I'm ready to fight alongside him. However, the wife was saying, What? The wife was saying, No, please don't go. He got his armor ready. It's one of the saddest scenes on the 10th of Muharram because every time I picture it, it breaks my heart, honestly. You can imagine him, he's getting ready and you can imagine his wife loves him. She said to him, please don't go and he's like, I have to. There's a duty on me. Not only is it a duty to my Lord and to the Imam of my time, but a duty to my mother. For my mother has said to me, that we must stand up for justice against the tyranny of the opposition. He got ready. She looked at him. He looked at her. <laughs> when she looked at him and he looked at her, he began to walk towards the battlefield. Naturally, because Wahab's heart was so soft, he turned around and he'd look at her. She said, please don't go. He continued walking. He said, just remain patient. He got closer to the battlefield. Again, he turned around. She said to him, please don't go. He again continued forward. He knew that his wife wasn't too happy. But then all of a sudden, he heard a cry from the wife. She said to him, go and fight amongst the pious ones of Al-Muhammad. He was confused at this moment. He turned around to her and he said to her, Why have you changed your mind? May Allah give you sabr when I recite these lines. He said to her, My dear wife, why have you changed your mind? Listen to her reply. She said to him, Because when I told you not to go, I turned around and I saw the children of Abba Abdullah one by one they were calling out he said to her but tell me more she said let me tell you the second reason he said to her go ahead tell me she said I saw Abba Abdullah standing alone and I heard him call out this broke my heart, Wahab, go out and fight. Wahab al-Kalbi fought valiantly. When they beheaded him, they killed him, they threw his head to his mother. Normally a mother would fall on that head and cry. Do you know what she did? She threw it back into the army of Omar bin Sa'ad. She said, I wish I had given 20 back to Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam His wife ran out when he fell on the ground. She tried to cover his body but then Rustam the slave of Shimmer came and beheaded her the only lady to die on the 10th of Muharram was Wahab al-Kalbi's wife at that moment there were mothers who lost their sons at Karbala but there were also ladies who lost their husbands from the companions of Imam al-Hussein of them Daylam the wife of Zuhair ibn al-Qayn she lost Zuhair. She knew that when Zuhair had fallen, they had absolutely butchered his body on the ground in Karbala. On Sham Gariba, the ladies were all asleep that night. Imagine they were all sleeping that night. Sayyidah Zainab was trying to sleep. But the amount of trouble she had gone through, Zainab was just about.
start sleeping. All of a sudden, Dalem woke up. She was in a state of trauma. She turned around to her servant. She said, can you do me a favor? And the servant said, yes, go ahead. What is it? She said, my husband's Zuhair's body is somewhere out there. Here's a piece of cloth because you'd want your husband to have a kafan on his body or at least something. So she said to her servant, go out, go and cover the body of my husband's hair. The servant went out, was looking for the bodies. One body had no arms, another had no head, another body was clearly trampled on. A few moments later, the servant returned back. When she returned back, Dalem looked to the servant. She said to her, did you cover my husband's body? The servant said, no. Dalem said, why? Listen to the lines. She said to her, as I was about to cover the body of Zuhair, I saw the holy body of Abba Abdullah with no cover. I thought to myself, how can I cover the body of a companion and the son of Fatima has none to cover his body? How can I place this cloth on the body of Zuhair and the grandson of Rasul Allah has none to cover his body. Inna lillahu wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Ya Allah, raise us with Muhammad and al-Muhammad. Raise us with the Imam of our time, Imam Sahib al-Asri wa-Zaman. Ya Allah, for all those out there who are the victims of trauma, remove the oppression that they face. For the originators of this majlis, Ya Allah, allow them to be amongst the companions of Imam Sahib al-Asri wa-Zaman. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Surah al-Fatiha, but before it, the loudest of your salawat. Ya Hussein, 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 Ya Hussein.